When I was a kid, I learned a song in children's church about two men who tried to build houses, a wise man and a foolish man. The first, the wise man, he built his house upon a rock. The rains came down and the floods came up, and the house on the rock, it stood firm. But then there was a foolish man. The foolish man, though, he built his house upon the sand. The rains came down, the floods came up, and the house on the sand went splat. As a kid, I always loved saying splat in children's church. And then the song ends with saying, build your house, build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can stand firm. It's hard to believe now, but this building behind me, it used to be a church. When I look at this building, I imagine that years ago, there were a lot of sermons and lessons that were preached here, taught here. I'm sure that there were baptisms that took place here, Christmas and Easter celebrated, even potluck dinners thrown here. Can you imagine the singing that used to take place in this building behind me? But now, nothing goes on here. For over half a century, this place hasn't been a church. It was a museum for a little while after it closed. And then now, it's just an empty shell. Everything's been removed, everything's been taken out of it. It's just a building that's falling down. What happened? How did a church become a museum and now just a hollow shell, just a memory of what it used to be? Somewhere along the way, somebody lost sight of what mattered. Somewhere along the way, somebody lost sight of Jesus. Somewhere along the way, somebody started to build on a foundation other than Him. Oh, the walls are still here, but the people aren't. The ministry is non-existent. Somewhere along the way, this ceased to be a church. And the same thing that happened to this church can happen to any church. When people start to focus on what doesn't matter, when people stop serving, when people stop giving, when people stop loving, when their focus becomes themselves rather than Jesus and those that he died for. It's hard to believe now, but this place behind me, it used to be a church. How did a church become a museum? A distant memory of what it once was. It's a pretty good question, isn't it? Let me see by a show of hands at all of our campuses, those watching out at Vertigris and Stone Canyon, as well as you guys here at North Garnett. How many of you have heard of this product called Spanx? Anybody heard of the product called Spanx? I'm not gonna ask who's wearing it. That's a little too much information. I don't wanna know. But I discovered this not too long ago, and when I saw it on the shelf, I thought, I gotta get it. Because this product promises, guarantees, to make you look skinnier than you actually are. And so let me show it to you this morning, in case you're unaware, you can thank me for introducing you to this later. But this is what the male version of Spanx looks like. It's basically a V-neck t-shirt, which we know only worship leaders wear. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Sorry about that, Josh and other guys. Uh, but it's basically just a V-neck t-shirt. You know, and after I bought it, I thought, I got to try it on. I have to see what it feels like, have to see if it works. So I put it on. And I kid you not, I thought I was going to have to be taken to the hospital to have this thing cut off. I was ready to go to the ER. It was like wearing a rubber band. Seriously, I could not breathe. I don't know why anybody in the world would ever wear this. It was horrible. It was awful. And as I was taking it off, I thought, you know, for years, women wore things like corsets and girdles, all to try to hide some physical feature, some physical reality that they were ashamed of. 
And you guys know this, there are thousands of products on the market today that promise to alter your physical appearance in some way or, or another. The problem with most of those products, however, is they actually don't change reality. They just hide reality or cover up reality. Most of those products are just all about appearance. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus addresses a church that existed in the ancient city of Sardis. And Jesus writes to this church, and this is what he says to them. Revelation 3 verse 1. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In other words, from all outward appearances, it looked as if this church, this church that met in Sardis, was alive. They had services every week. They had preaching and teaching every Sunday, probably singing in worship every single Sunday. They probably had programs and activities that they offered. Probably had meetings all the time. Their, their elders probably met once a week or something to discuss the business of the church. Their staff probably kept office hours. From all outward appearances, it looked as if the church at Sardis was alive. But Jesus says, I know your hearts. I know what's going on on the inside. You have a reputation of being alive. But in all reality, you're spiritually dead. See, I discovered a truth a long time ago that hit me pretty hard. kind of woke me up. And it's this. Churches die long before they ever buy padlocks for their doors. And the same thing that happens to the church starts in the human heart. I hear it all the time. People say things like, you know, I used to serve, but I used to volunteer with the children's ministry, but I used to go to homeless shelters, food pantries, but I used to be a door greeter, but I used to teach a Sunday school class, but what happens to the church starts in the human heart. And when the human heart becomes close to what really matters, the doors of the church will soon follow. See, according to all the recent polls that have been taken, the large majority of Americans claim to be Christian. They identify as Christian, claim to be followers of Jesus. The problem is when you look at behavior patterns in our culture today, it's often difficult to tell the difference between those who are actually following Jesus and those who are just appearing to do so. And Jesus seemed to know that this might be the case. He seemed to know that there would be some people who would settle for just appearances, appearing to be a follower of his, rather than actually following him. And so he weighed in on this discussion and listened to what he says. Listen to what he told his followers in John 13, verse 34. He says, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And listen to this last line. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. One thing that should give away our identity as followers of Jesus quicker than anything else is the love that Jesus has planted in us. Jesus says that the quality and the quantity of our love will be the clearest indicator to the watching world that we are who we say we are, that we are who we claim to be, followers of Jesus. But I have to ask, is that really the case today? I saw a bumper sticker not too long ago that said, I love Jesus, just not his followers. 
Is there a difference? There's not supposed to be. It was my second year in full-time ministry, and it was Easter Sunday. And there had been a lot of planning and preparation that had gone into Easter Sunday. And we were excited. And it was a great day. The church had the largest crowd it had had for years. It was a great celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Just one of those days that you think, man, God is present and God is doing something. And I was out in the lobby of our church greeting people after one of our services. And all of a sudden, this couple walked up to me. And I could tell they were mad. I could tell they were upset. And the wife from this couple, she came up to me, put her finger in my face, and she was hot. I mean, her face was red. And she said, I want to know who's responsible. And I looked at her, responsible for what? And she said, that cross you have on the stage. We had set up a decorative cross, a wooden cross, just for Easter. It typically wasn't up. It normally wasn't up there. But we had put up this cross, and we had placed a cloth over it, draped a cloth over it, a purple cloth. And she said, don't you know on Easter Sunday, the only color cloth that's supposed to be draped on the cross is a white cloth? She said, you're supposed to put a purple cloth on Palm Sunday, a black cloth on Good Friday, and then a white cloth on Easter Sunday. And I looked at her, kind of puzzled, didn't know what to say. I said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I've never heard of that tradition, didn't know that was even a thing. In fact, I'm not even the one that set that cross up. I'm not even sure who did, but somebody did. And I'm sorry you're offended, but it wasn't intentional, I promise. And she looked at me still mad, and she said, Young man, you better start being a leader and know what's going on around this place. And she walked off mad. Now, the worst part was, there was a family who had just started attending our church that Sunday. It was their first Sunday there. And they were standing nearby. There were a lot of people nearby. Remember, it's Easter Sunday, so our lobby was full of people, and they all heard it. But there was a new family right beside me who I was getting ready to meet before she came up to me and interrupted that conversation, interrupted that greeting. And so then I turned to this new family who was waiting to meet me. I said, hey, uh, good to have you guys in church today. And I'll never forget what the mother in that family said to me. She said, does that lady come to church here? And I said, yeah, but we've been trying to get her to leave. No, I didn't say that really. <laughs> I wanted to, but I didn't. <laughs> I just kind of said, oh, yeah, well, you know, it takes all kinds. And, you know, church is made of perfect people. We have a lot of imperfect people here. And, you know, I tried just to blow it off. But I remember being embarrassed. Obviously, in that woman's life, something was missing. We had just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus and she was worried, concerned about a decoration. Now I know that's an extreme example, but if we're not careful, we will replace what really matters to Jesus with what doesn't matter at all to him. And I'm convinced that that was the case for a religious guy who met Jesus one afternoon. You see, Jesus was focused on things that the, that the religious elite, the religious people were not focused on. Jesus was focused on changing people's lives, changing people's hearts. The religious elite, they were focused on traditions and rituals. They were more concerned with things like, how many steps were you allowed to take on the Sabbath day? Or, how many Bible verses did you have memorized? Or, how many tassels did you have on your robe, on your garment? Because that was a sign of spirituality. Those were the things they were concerned about. Jesus He's concerned about changing people's hearts. He's unleashing love on the poor, the broken, the hurting, the isolated, the untouchables of society. And they don't like that. So they try to devalue him because he's not agreeing with what they're teaching. 
And so one day this guy walks up to Jesus and he tries to test him with a question. And the question that this teacher of the law asks him is this, Matthew twenty two thirty six, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now this was a gotcha question. They're trying to trap Jesus here because an unwise answer would expose Jesus and maybe uh, allow for them to say, well, you think that this command is great, but really this one isn't. Why is that one less important than this one? And it would just bring up a whole argument and debate and... They were trying to accuse him of devaluing some other part of the law. But Jesus doesn't blink an eye at their question. He answers them immediately, and he silences his opponents by saying in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus says, you want to know what's important, what's most important to God? You want to know what really matters? You want to know what everything else in God's plan hinges on? Here it is. Love God. Love God with everything you have, your entire being, and love people as He has loved you. That's it. That's what's most important. That's what everything else in God's law revolves around. It doesn't matter how often you come to worship. It doesn't matter how many tassels you have on your robe. It doesn't matter how many steps you take on the Sabbath. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you have memorized or don't have memorized. If you're not loving God and loving people, you're missing out on what's most important. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they couldn't argue with that. But they struggled to get it. They struggled to comprehend it. In fact, Jesus has this very conversation about what's most important in God's eyes several different times. And on a different occasion, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is talking once again about what's most important to God. And one of the religious leaders there, the teachers of the law who is present listening to Jesus, speaks up and says, I know, I know what's most important to God. You're to love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. See, this guy probably has been following Jesus around. He's been listening to Jesus teach, so he knows the right answer. And Jesus says that. He says, you're right, you got it, that's it. Those are the two most important things to God. Everything else revolves around those two statements. You are absolutely right. Good job, that's what life is all about. But then this teacher of the law has a follow-up question. And in Luke 10, verse 29, he asks, And who is my neighbor? See, this guy... He knew the right answer. He'd been listening to Jesus. But he still didn't have Jesus' heart. His vision still wasn't in line with God's vision. Because you know what that question means. He's asking, okay, I get it, Jesus. Love God, love people. I get that. That's what life is all about. Okay. But there's got to be some people that I'm excused from loving. There's got to be some people that I'm not obligated to love. There's got to be some people I don't have to love, right? Who exactly do I need to love? Be specific here, Jesus. See, he has the right answer, but not the right heart. He's missing what's most important. We've been, my family, we've been at First Church for several months now, and we're loving being here. We feel like this is exactly where we need to be. But in the transition to First Church, my biggest concern was my son Alex, because he's four years old, and he loved our church back home, and he had a lot of friends there. 
And I was worried how he might adjust. But you know, he is loving First Church. He loves First Kids. He loves the EC. He loves uh, the clubhouse and all that kind of stuff. Every time, I kid you not, every time we pull onto our campus here, he will shout out, yes, First Church! I mean, real loud. He loves it here. Of course, that warms my heart. And so every Sunday after services, when we sit down to lunch, we'll ask him, what'd you learn about in church today? And we asked him this a few weeks ago, and he said, well, we learned about a tax collector, but it wasn't Zacchaeus. I was like, okay, was it Matthew? Because Matthew is another tax collector, you know, mentioned in the New Testament. I said, was it Matthew? And Alex goes, I don't know, but he was wearing a red shirt. Now, apparently in the video that they had watched, the tax collector they talked about was wearing a red shirt. That's what he got out of the lesson. He was paying attention, but he missed what was most important. And I wonder if we don't do the same. I wonder if sometimes we don't come to church and we listen. We pay attention to what the preacher says. We stand up and sing the songs. But when we walk out of here, we're talking about things that God doesn't want us talking about. We're concerned about stuff that God isn't concerned about. We're focused on stuff that God doesn't want us focused on. I think that's this teacher of the law in our passage. He's listening, but he's missing the main point. And so Jesus, he answers this man's question, who is my neighbor, by telling one of his most well-known and popular parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's what we call it. And Jesus opens up this parable with this line, Luke 10, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now hit pause there just for a second. This road that Jesus mentions it's still in, uh, in operation today. You can still go and walk this road if you want to. And it's lined on both sides with cliffs and rocks, which were perfect places, especially in the ancient world, for thieves and robbers and bandits to hang out, to jump people as they traveled. And what's interesting to me is Jesus says that there was this man, a Jewish man, leaving Jerusalem, going down to Jericho. That's the language that Jesus uses, going down to Jericho. The problem with that is if you look at a map, and I've got a map up on the screen behind me, if you look at a map, Jericho is actually north, northeast of Jerusalem. Normally when we say we're going down somewhere, it means we're going south, right? So obviously the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it goes up, not down. So why does Jesus say he went down to Jericho? Is Jesus directly challenged? No, not at all. See, Jerusalem, the city, it was located on a plateau in the Judean mountains, which meant it was elevated above all the towns and villages around it. So every time you left Jerusalem, no matter what direction you were going, you were always going down. In fact, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a 2,300 feet drop in elevation. So that's something that Jesus' audience would have been aware of. So when he said he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And so, let's read the rest of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10 as he tells this famous parable, which we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, now you guys know a priest was somebody who officiated sacrifices in the temple, officiated worship in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, now a Levite was somebody who assisted 
with leading worship in the temple. Another religious guy, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... Now, there was real conflict in this day between Samaritans and Jews. They hated one another. They despised one another. There was real racial and political tension between these two groups. I'm not exaggerating when I say Navy SEALs and ISIS get along better than Samaritans and Jews in this day. So a Samaritan comes by, and as he traveled, he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus asked the question to his audience that day, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Now, we understand the main point that Jesus is making here. Everyone is our neighbor. This teacher of the law wants to know, who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who you meet. It doesn't matter their social background. It doesn't matter their race. It doesn't matter their ethnicity. It doesn't matter their economic background. It doesn't matter their past, the sins they've committed. Everyone that you meet is your neighbor. You are to love everyone. So we get that. We understand the overall point. But I think there's a little detail in this passage that we often overlook. And it might just be the most important point that Jesus makes in this story. Did you notice what Jesus says about these religious guys? Did you notice what they were doing when they passed by this man who'd been left for dead? What were they doing? Verse 31 says they were Going down the same road. Going down, meaning they were what? Leaving Jerusalem, going to Jericho. Now what you need to understand is most priests and Levites did not live in Jerusalem. They lived in the surrounding towns and villages. And they would be called in for assignment for an extended period of time to serve in the temple. And then once their assignment was finished, they would leave Jerusalem and go back to their town, their hometown. And a large majority of the religious people who served in Jerusalem lived in Jericho. So what's going on in this passage? These men, these religious guys, this priest, this Levite, they've just finished helping serve in the temple. They've just finished worshiping God themselves. They've just finished assisting other people in their worship of God. They're leaving their time that they spend among God's people in the temple, worshiping their Heavenly Father, and on their way home from worship, they pass by a man who's been left for dead, and they keep going. Jesus is letting us know something. Just because you go to church... Just because you have all the right answers, just because you volunteer and serve, doesn't mean your heart is in line with His. Doesn't mean you're sharing His vision. Maybe that's why Jesus said on one occasion, Matthew 15, 8, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's possible to have the appearance of following Jesus. To go to church, to attend a small group, to sing the songs on Sunday morning, to listen to sermons, but miss what Jesus is really all about. 
miss what's most important, miss his vision for life. And maybe that's why, according to recent studies, 6,000 churches a year in the United States close their doors never to open again. 80% of churches that are 50 years old or older are either declining in their growth or they've become stagnant. How does a church become a museum? A distant memory of what it once was? You replace what's most important for what's not. You settle for coming to church rather than being the church. And at First Church, we don't want that to be us. We don't even want to come close to that. So let me be very transparent with you. First Church is a great church. I love it here. My family loves it here. We're a great church. But over the past few years, We've been through a whole lot as a church. There have been a lot of changes, some good, some bad. We've had some highs, and we've had some lows. And the larger a church gets, and an older a church becomes, the easier it is to lose sight of what's most important. The easier it is to become complacent. The easier it is to focus on stuff that doesn't matter to Jesus. And so for the past several months, I've been meeting with our elders here at First Church as well as our staff to discuss the state of our church, the health of our church, and figure out what we need to do next, figure out what God wants us to do next. And as I've had these discussions with our leaders, we've all come to the same conclusion. God has opened up a door for us here at First Church. This is a new day for our church. We've entered into a new era We've started a new chapter, and it's an exciting one. And since this is a new day for our church, we all came to another conclusion, and it's this. We need a new vision for our church that clarifies exactly who God wants us to be, that clarifies who we are and what we want to become. And as we talked about looking at a new vision for our church, the vision that God wants us to have, we decided to follow the example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 and make it as simple and easy to remember as possible. Because honestly, when we look at so many churches in our culture today, a lot of people complicate the mission that Jesus intended to be so simple. And so we followed the example of Matthew chapter 22 to keep our mission, to keep our purpose as a church as simple as possible. And Jesus taught, if you're loving the Lord with everything you have, and you're loving uh, people as he has loved you, then you're doing what's most important. You're keeping the main thing the main thing. And that's what we want to do as a church. And so after a lot of studying, and a lot of prayer, and a lot of conversation, we landed on a simple mission statement that we want to define who we are as a church and what we're trying to become. And so here it is. I know some of you guys have been waiting for it. This is our new mission statement. It's simple, it's easy, it's only five words, two statements. Love Jesus, love like Jesus. That's it. We want to be a church that's known for loving Jesus with everything we have, 
with our entire being and loving people as he has loved us. It's so simple a child can say it. It's so simple those of us who are getting older can remember it. It's simple. And it's who we are. And I dare you to find anything that you believe the church is called to do that doesn't fit under one of those two categories. That's what we're supposed to be all about. And if we have the greatest facilities, and we meet budget every week, and we have a growing staff, and even if our attendances continue to grow, but we are not loving Jesus and loving like Jesus, we're missing what's most important. And so we want everything we do in this place to align with those two statements. Because Jesus says that's putting first things first. Now we could have worded this in a different way. Some churches say something to the effect, love God, love people. And it means the same thing, really. But we want to be more specific. Because sometimes when people talk about God, they talk about this generic God, this man upstairs. Uh, and they're not, they're not necessarily talking about the God of the Bible. So we want to focus on Jesus because we're a church that's all about Jesus. He is the head of this church. I'm not. Our elders aren't. None of our staff members are. Jesus is the head of First Church. And so we want to focus on the one name under heaven by which men can be saved, the name of Jesus. So we decided to, we tried to word in this way, love Jesus. And then we decided to say love like Jesus rather than love people. Because there are a lot of groups that love people. You know, the Red Cross and Salvation Army, they love people to some degree. But the love that we are to have for people as followers of Jesus is supposed to be different. So we want to love like him. He's our example. Now, sometimes people have accused me of talking too much about the love of God. And they'll say things like, I know it's hard to believe, but they'll say things like, you know, Chad, we want to discuss the deeper stuff. Guys, is there a deeper, greater subject than the love of God? I don't think so. I'm convinced we could spend a lifetime talking about God's love and still not scratch the surface. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 22, you've got to put first things first. The quality and the quantity of our love for God and our love for others will prove to the world that we are who we say we are, followers of Jesus. And I think that's why Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's our goal. That's who we want to be. That's who we hope we are. That's our vision. And we want everything we do to align with that. Love Jesus. Love like Jesus. It's not just a slogan. It's who we are. Because we believe that First Church has been placed right here at this point in history to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. And in order for that to happen, we've got to all be on the same page, focusing on what really matters. Tom Rainer studies church growth in our country. He's a president of Lifeway. And he put out some stats not too long ago, generational stats, about the different generations in our culture today. And what he noted in this study was how many people, the percentage of people in each generation that are seriously, who are seriously following Jesus. Not those who just come to church occasionally, you know, Christmas and Easter, whatever, but people who are seriously following Jesus. And I want to, I want to point out what he found. He said in the builder generation, as he calls it, this is sometimes known as the greatest generation, those born between 1927 and 1945, 65% of that generation 
serious about their faith in Jesus. That's not bad. That's way over half. It's pretty good, actually. But then you jump down to the boomer generation, the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964. Of that group, 35% faithfully following Jesus. And then you go on down to the buster generation, as Tom Rainer calls it, sometimes known as Generation X, those born between 1965 and 1983. It drops to 16%, 16% faithfully following Jesus. But then you get down to the bridger generation, sometimes known as the millennial generation, those born between 1984 to the present. This is not including kids. These are adults within this generation, 18 and above. 4%. 4% of the millennials in our culture today are serious about their faith in Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but that's my generation. I'm in there by one year, <laughs> barely. And I know you might be thinking, well, he's young. Well, maybe. Some of you guys might be thinking, he's old. I don't know. But we're losing my generation. Something that we're doing in the church isn't working we are losing my generation, 4%. And my heart is heavy about this. It breaks my heart to see churches arguing and dividing over stuff that doesn't matter when there is a whole generation that is lost. It breaks my heart that churches want to argue about their own personal preferences and become distracted by the color of the carpet issues, rather than stopping to help the ones on the roadside who are hurting. Jesus ends the parable of the Good Samaritan by turning to the audience and saying in verse 37, go and do likewise. That's what we're called to do. You're never going to find a church that meets all of your preferences. I haven't found one yet. This church doesn't meet all of my preferences, and I'm not kidding about that. You're never going to find a church that meets all of your preferences. But we've got to unite around what matters because there's a generation waiting on us to unleash God's love. And so we as a leadership have come up with four expressions that will help us define how we want to unleash this revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. And I'm going to quickly preview those for you. But I'm going to unpack them over the next four weeks as we go through this series. So I'm not going to give you a lot of detail today, just going to give them to you. And over the next four weeks, I'm going to unpack them even more. And the first expression is that we want to be a church that relentlessly pursues God. And which, with each of these expressions, we have a challenge that we're going to give our church. And the first challenge is this. We want 100% of our first church family reading their Bibles daily. We don't want to be a church that just studies God's Word when we come together on Sundays. We want to be a church that is diving deep into God's Word every single day. And we're going to help you do that. We're going to show you how to do that. We want to be a church that's known for relentlessly pursuing God in daily life. Second, we want to be a church that sacrificially serves our families. The family is under attack in our culture today. And Satan right now is winning that battle. We want to put an end to that. We want to be a church that sacrificially serves our families so the challenge that we're going to issue our church is we want 100% of spouses and families at First Church to pursue God and serve His mission together. Sometimes churches program their people to death to the point they don't have any time with their families. We don't want to do that. Sometimes churches have so many meetings 
that people don't have time with their families like they should. We don't want to do that. We want to create environments where families can come together and grow together and serve together. The third expression, we want to intentionally invest in the next generation. Now let me clarify something. By saying we want to intentionally invest in the next generation, we are not leaving any generation behind. I believe with all my heart that the church should be intergenerational, meaning all churches should be working together as one, one family. The church is for everyone, regardless of age. So by us saying we want to intentionally invest in the next generation, we're not leaving any generation behind. The older generation needs the younger generation, and the younger generation needs the older generation. We need one another. God set it up that way, and that's what the Bible asks of us. But 4% of of millennials, and there's no telling what's going to happen to the generation after the millennials. So we want to be intentional about investing in the next generation. Here's the challenge. We want 100% of children and students who come to First Church to learn how to follow Jesus in daily life. And we're going to need the help of older generations to teach the younger generation just that. And then last, we want to extend hope to everyone. And here's a challenge that goes along with that expression. We want 100% of our First Church family to introduce at least one person to Jesus each year. And by introduce, we don't mean, hey, come to church, or let me just tell you about Jesus. We want to challenge every single member of our church to introduce somebody to Jesus so that they come to a saving faith in Jesus, so they're baptized into him. At least one a year. And we believe that when we do these things, we will be a dangerous church meaning our church, through our love, will pose a real threat to the status quo of the culture we're living in. We'll pose a real threat to things like divorce and spiritual apathy and biblical shallowness, a very real threat to hell and the powers of darkness that are at work in the world around us. Because we believe that love, God's love, changes everything. So let's not complicate things. Let's not get distracted Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's be a church that's loving Jesus and loving like Jesus. If you come to my office at any given time, you will see this fire truck sitting on a shelf. And I don't have this fire truck sitting on my shelf because I click fire trucks or anything like that. I have it because I want you to ask me about it. And when you ask me about it, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to say... Let's say that we lived in a community that didn't have a fire department. And so one day a house fire broke out and an entire family died. And so we as citizens of this community said, we can't let this happen again. And so we all came together and we decided we're going to start a volunteer fire department. So we got some training, we educate ourselves on what it takes to be a volunteer fire department, and then we got some resources together and eventually we bought a fire truck. So we had this fire truck, and me as the leader of this group, I said, well, you know, we need to make sure we take care of our truck. So I look at everybody who's part of this volunteer fire team, and I say, okay, you, you're in charge of making sure that there's gas in the tank always, because we want to make sure we can get where we're going. And then I turn to you, and I say, I want you to be in charge of making sure there's water in our water tank, because we can't get to a fire and be out of water. That's important. Then I turn to somebody else in the group, and I say, I want to put you in charge of making sure the truck is waxed and washed because we want to make sure our truck is looking good. And then I turned to somebody else and I said, 
I want to make sure that you're in charge of the taxes and the tags and all that because we don't want to get in trouble with the government or anything like that. And I turned to somebody else and I said, you're in charge of making sure that there's regular oil changes and air in the tires and all that because we want our truck to be in the best of shape. And after I finish telling everybody what they're in charge of, then what if I turned to you? I said, okay now, I want to test your memory. What's your job? I did this with our church staff and I did it on a separate occasion with our elders. And when I did it with our church staff, I gave each of them something to be in charge of. And then I called out Zeb, our campus minister at Vertigris. I said, okay, Zeb, I want to test your memory. What's your job? And Zeb said, to put gas in the tank. And he was all excited about it. And I said, no. Your job is to fight fires and save lives. What I put you in charge of is just a task that gets us to the end goal. Your job is to fight fires and save lives. I did it with the elders. I'm not going to tell you which one I fooled that time, but the same is true with the church. What good is it if you have a fire truck that's in tip-top shape, but you never put out any fires with it? What good is a church that has the best facilities, that's meeting budget, that's even growing in attendance, but we're not changing lives with the love of God? We're missing what's most important. So guys, what's our job? Why are we here? We're here to love Jesus and love like Jesus. It's really that simple. It's who we are. It's who we want to become. I want First Church to be known for being the most loving church in Northeast Oklahoma. Guys, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, our friends, our teammates... Our school buddies, everyone we meet, they're waiting on us. Love Jesus, love like Jesus. It's what life is all about. Have we made the church too complicated? In Matthew 22, Jesus was approached by a religious leader who asked which of God's commandments was the most important. Jesus simply responded, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, if we're not loving God and loving our neighbors as God loves us, we are missing what's most important. At First Church, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. We don't want to get distracted by stuff that doesn't matter to Jesus. We want to be a church that keeps it simple. At First Church, we simply want to be Jesus followers who love Jesus, love like Jesus. It's not just a slogan, it's who we are and who we want to continue to become. Love Jesus, love like Jesus. We believe we're here at this point in time to unleash a revolution of love. In the 918 and beyond. Love Jesus, love like Jesus. It's really not complicated. Love Jesus and love like Jesus. First Church, Northeast Oklahoma is waiting.